Welcome to Season 3, Episode 16 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is Ross Benjamin. Ross is a writer and translator. His new translation of Kafka's Diaries is out now from Schochen Press. Welcome to the show, Ross. Thanks for having me. How's life in New York? It's great. Yeah, it's uh, not so not so wintry or snowy. Uh, I think uh, we're breaking records for how long we've gotten without snow this winter. Um, so that's a little odd, unusual. Yeah, you're not quite living in the city, are you? No, I'm in the lower Hudson Valley in the riverside town uh, north of the city and on the other side of the river. Okay. Very nice. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's not a secret. <laughs> nice one. All right. Well, you've done numerous translations from German, including a retranslation of Job by Joseph Roth and books by Daniel Kellman and Clemens J. Zetz is Indigo, which I loved. Do you want to tell us how you got into translation? Yeah. Um, uh, it's not that um, interesting of a story necessarily, but um, uh, I originally started learning German. Well, backing up a little bit, I mean, translation was always something I thought of as an interest of mine, but I, I didn't have German originally. I'd, take, I'd taken French in high school. And um, very soon after beginning to learn a foreign language, my interest was in translation. And I remember high school designing an independent study with a um, foreign language teacher to translate Baudelaire from from French. And my French, you know, I never became as proficient and spoken everyday French as I later became in German. But And yet I had this sort of overreach where I was interested in translating Baudelaire. Um, so that kind of um, uh, replicated itself when I became interested in German, where at first I wasn't necessarily thinking about translation. I just wanted to be able to read a number of um, German authors in the original who were really the authors that I was most um, infatuated with at that time, among them Kafka, um, Nietzsche, wrote a few others, um, uh, or maybe just the preponderance of authors I was interested in who wrote in German made me want to learn the language. And uh, once I started learning the language, then uh, an affair with the language began that went beyond just um wanting to um, access those original works um, and uh, it took off of its own accord my interest in German um, and uh, I spent a year in Berlin after college uh, which was what I really um, became immersed in the language and the culture and the contemporary literature in a way that I hadn't previously and in a way that led to my pursuit of translation as a career, let's say, to, to, to keep it short. Yeah. Okay. And so what led you to Kafka? Well, Kafka was a touchstone writer of mine from early adolescence. The first few friends that I made who were really interested in literature, we began um, reading Kafka to each other in the school library um, during free periods, or sometimes when maybe we were supposed to be somewhere else. We would uh, read to each other from the trial and from the complete stories in the old uh, weird translations, the, the first translations of Kafka's fiction into English. Um, and so Kafka was always synonymous with my um, attraction to German literature. And what led me to translating him now? Um, probably I wouldn't have felt equal to the task, although I did start with Helderlin's <laughs> The period when I was translating, which was also a task I probably wasn't equal to at the beginning of my translation career, but I just jumped in the way maybe I did with Baudelaire in high school. But I probably did wait, or it's probably best that I waited to tackle Kafka until I'd had more experience and, and um, um, preparation. Not that really you're ever prepared to translate Kafka um, or, or, or necessarily qualified until, you, until you've done it. I do want to ask you about uh, Clemens J. Zetz, because I picked up Indigo a few years ago when I was living in Perth briefly um, at some crappy used bookshop in some shitty town. And 
I picked it up and read it and just loved it. But do you want to tell us a little bit about, about him? Yeah, he is an extraordinary and also pretty offbeat and unusual writer. So Clement Zetz, I actually have been translating his work since out 2010, little by little doing stories and essays and um, wherever there was interest in publishing Zetz in English. And the one novel I got to do was Indigo. Um, he's actually written a number of novels, all of which are as intriguing and original um, and brilliant as Indigo, um, one called The Frequencies, another called uh, The Hour Between Woman and Guitar. Uh, he has collections of poetry. Uh, and then and then Austria, Germany, and, and German language letters, um, he, he is among the most prominent uh, contemporary authors, um, lavished with prizes and attention. His sort of uh, recognition in English is probably long overdue, and I hope that the English language world uh, discovers him. Uh, with Indigo, uh, that novel, yeah, there's this kind of paranoid, like Pynchon-esque mm. uh, atmosphere to it, where somehow these children, the thing about the Indigo children is that um, when you're within a certain proximity of them, you get sick, that other people who are in their proximity develop symptoms and it depends for the different children there are like different distances that that where you can remain asymptomatic or you start to get dizzy or something and they've somehow they've been gone they've been sequestered in this institute educational institute and they're both seemingly being cared for but also possibly exploited by the society around them and which is also contemporaneous with our present but it seems to have a somewhat slightly different history in which these children have been present maybe even for centuries. And Zetz also includes all of these um, texts that um, are, you know, like old allegories written by 19th century German writers. And they're half uh, authentic versions of these texts and they're half sort of forgeries or um, he doctors the text to sort of suggest that indigo children have always been a phenomenon and that there's these traces of them throughout literature. Um, so there's this this blurriness between um, these documents that are seemingly authentic historical documents in the book that he's kind of fictionalizing or tampering with. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Just, I mean, that's just, just a sort of fraction of the fascinating things that Zetz does with in his writing. He seems to just be sort of limitlessly inventive and experimental. Yeah, that's a great book. I highly recommend it. <laughs> One of the other authors that you translate is Daniel Kalman, and his book Till came out a couple of years ago now, and it's been something I've been meaning to read for ages. And you've translated quite a few of his books, haven't you? Uh, just just Till, and then the one before that, which was a novella called um, "You Should Have Left." Um, that's kind of a horror story um, or a ghost story. <clears throat> um, before that, he had a um, his translator was Carol Brown Janeway who sadly passed away, and she had done a number of his books before that, um, Measuring the World, which was a huge international hit, I think maybe the best-selling, internationally best-selling German book of all time. That was translated by um, Carol Janeway and um, a novel called F that I really love, um, and a novel and stories called Fame, and I, I think a few others too. Um, and then I took over with You Should Have Left, um, and uh, and and Till is the first of his more. Um, so You Should Have Left is more of a of a novella, so a shorter novel, mm -hmm. and Till is really a, a um, you know wide ranging, far reaching piece of literature. Mm -hmm. With your translations, is it something that you pitch these translations, or are you approached by a translator? For the first half or two thirds of my career, it's mostly been. That I'm approached, but there's a strange kind of circularity to it where maybe I've proposed some things to a, an American publisher or I've spoken to a German publisher about my interest in something. Um, and that project doesn't end up being exactly what I'm doing, but it kind of leads organically to the thing that I'm doing. So that I tend to be, when something's brought to me, it tends to be a project that seems very much for for me, I guess, kind of, um, there's a real back and forth between me and either German publishers or American publishers or writers 
um, where they tend to get a sense of what is my area of of interest, and then and then more recently, um, I've been able to do more things that I originated, including the Kafka project, um, which was my own um, initiative. Wow. Okay. Well, let's speak about that now. The new translation is seven hundred pages long. You worked on it for about eight years. Do you want to tell us how the project got started? Yeah, um, it's also a bit of a complex story because I began with a different publisher than I ended up with. The publisher I ended up with, Shokin Books, is probably where I would have gone with this project if I had just had the project um, in mind and then said, where should I bring it? Uh, Shokin Books is the obvious place. It's been the whole of Kafka in English. And in fact, originally in, in German, the posthumous writings um, were all published with Shokin Books. Uh, I'd been doing a different project with a different publisher and they had asked me, you know, what's your dream project or, you know, what would be a big sort of um, um, exciting project to, that you really want to do. And I uh, brought up Kafka's Diaries because I had discovered that the German edition was radically different from the existing English translation, that it was a whole different version of the text, um, uh, which we can talk about, and uh, was riveted by this German version that was nowhere to be found in English and had already existed in German by that, by that time for almost 20 years, um, so it just seemed long overdue. Um, and yeah, I, I was doing it for that publisher for the first several years that I was working on it, and I was you know taking way longer than expected and postponing a lot, possibly squandering some of my goodwill with the publisher but we ended up breaking over um creative differences where um and we'll probably talk about this too but my approach involved preserving a lot of the um untidiness a lot of the the disarray of the diaries as they were written which i found um extraordinarily appealing and um for me that was the appeal and the value of translating uh these diaries is that they were the german edition that was the basis of my translation transcribed his notebooks um, with great fidelity and precision. And I wanted the translation to reflect that. And uh, with uh, my first publisher, they, I think, were a little bit disconcerted by the by the messiness by design of, of my translation. And when I brought it to Shokin, they embraced it, you know, from the start. Um, and, uh, and in fact, I had modeled my approach on other Kafka editions they'd done that were based on the posthumous manuscripts. So I think maybe maybe now's the time to kind of explain this somewhat fraught history of Kafka's manuscripts and his uh, the publication of his um, of the writing that had been unpublished in his lifetime after his death, um, because uh, there are these competing editions, and this is sort of the source of of um, new Kafka translations, some new Kafka translations versus old Kafka translations. So like um, when Kafka died, he had instructed his um, closest friend, his literary executor, Max Brode, to collect and then burn all of his unpublished writing, his his diaries, his letters, and also the manuscripts of the novels that became known as the trial, the castle in America, um, um, because Brode, in fact, disobeyed his wishes. Uh, almost immediately after his death said about um, publishing the unfinished novels. Um, and uh, when he did so, he crafted his own editions of the novels um, and intrusively reshaped them according to his own standards, his own agendas, uh, and, and wasn't entirely transparent about what he was doing either. And those served as the basis for all translations of Kafka until after Brode's death, which was in 1968, and it took some time for new Kafka editions that went back to the original manuscripts. Um, and at that point, the world discovered just how much Brode had altered uh, the writing that Kafka had actually left behind, including in the novels like The Trial and The Castle and America. And Shokin, before I ever took on this diaries project, had already published a new translation of the trial that was based on the German edition that was based on Kafka's original manuscript, uh, which was far less um, 
structured and cohesive as Broad had made it, but which was also um, um, much closer to what Kafka had actually written. And that was the model I took uh, for how I approached the diaries, which was uh, fidelity uh, to, 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 to the original text uh, as Kafka had written it instead of um, translating in addition um, that had been uh, misrepresented by by heavy-handed editorial intervention. Uh, and uh, so Shokin had almost kind of pioneered the, 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 the approach that I um, took on, and so it was a perfect fit when I uh, brought it. It sort of felt like bringing Kafka home to where he belonged in the first place. Yeah, it's amazing reading it because it really strikes you how I guess unpolished these diaries are and and you really have translated with a lot of fidelity and it makes it feel so natural um, when you're reading it. It's um it's funny as well because some of your choices I think with the with translating and with adding in like the original Yiddish words that he uses a lot of the time, I think it's such an interesting approach. And sometimes you do feel like Kafka's kind of repeated himself or he's made an error or or things just don't seem to sometimes you don't know quite what's going on because there's, right. there's some things that just, um, they appear and then they disappear or he starts a thought and doesn't finish it or he started the piece of writing and then he's come back to it later. But with that whole approach, was it, did it make it difficult to kind of put on the page? Yeah, 100%. It was the most difficult thing I ever translated and I wouldn't be surprised if it is the most difficult thing I ever translate, although... Yeah, I don't want to jinx myself. Uh, end up with something far more difficult as as punishment for for expecting that. Yeah, I mean, just that um, kind of uh, abortive quality of you know, his flow is constantly interrupted. So as a translator, then your flow is interrupted. I know finish it too. Um, you know, as soon as you get into um, sort of, um, you feel like you're locked into the text that he's drafting on the page, he breaks off and comes back four days later writing something completely different and mm -hmm. um, back to, to square one. Um, so absolutely, that was one among the many challenges of translating this was that quality of hits and starts, the breaking off and beginning again. Yeah. And in your introduction, I know you've got the, the two samples, I suppose, side by side of your work and some of the previous uh, efforts to translate this. And just the, the fact that they're so sanitized and cleaned up uh, makes it so interesting to read things. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Freud's version was sanitized and also um, sanctified. In a way, he, he eliminated the technical imperfections that, to his mind, marred the text. And then he also censored what he saw as flaws and foibles of Kafka himself. Um, so Kafka's own self-scrutiny, he was very willing to expose aspects of himself that Broad did not think were fit for public um, yeah. scrutiny. And maybe Kafka didn't either. He wanted it burned after all, but Broad kind of tried to have it both ways, to, to publish it and yet to not expose his friend um, beyond what he was comfortable with. Mm. Um, chronologically, the majority of the entries are written between, let's say, 1911, 1914, then some jump up to 1917. The last ones are from the early 20s. And the way even the presentation of the dates in this book changes quite a bit uh, throughout the writing, as I'm sure you've kept it very much uh, in line with the original. But do you want to tell us a bit about that chronology and how the, these diaries came together and this format they're kind of presented in? Yeah, so in my translation, I'm following very closely or pretty much exactly format wise the uh, german edition and the german edition kept to the sequence of of kafka's notebooks rather than attempting to impose uh you know a chronology on them partially because or maybe mainly because um any chronology would be to some extent speculative or artificial because um kafka like you said he didn't date every entry uh, he dated inconsistently. Sometimes he misdated entries, but he also uh, had multiple notebooks at the same time. And he would sometimes begin a new notebook um, 
maybe with certain intentions, like you can see in the second notebook that the first several entries are all drafts of literary pieces. Uh, so you think, oh, he, he maybe started this notebook thinking uh, everything's all crammed into, in, in the first notebook, it's all crammed together, literary entries, personal uh, uh, accounts of his daily life, just marginalia, um, dreams, drafts of letters. And the second notebook he begins and you get the sense, oh, he thought I'll, I'll keep a separate notebook that where I just sequester my literary writing. But then very quickly he starts doing the other kinds of diary entries there too. And then what happened over time is he would seem to maybe just grab whatever writing receptacle was at hand. So he might grab a, a notebook he began earlier. So he's already in his fourth notebook, but he'll grab his second notebook where there's still some blank pages and continue writing a story that he began in the fourth notebook, he'll continue writing it from the back on the blank pages of the second notebook. So what you end up with is, is this um, non-chronological disarray. And um, by keeping to the sequence of the notebooks, you can readers can get a sense of just what Kafka left behind. This book is quite a page turner. It blows that sickly tortured artist thing right out of the water. And instead we have this kind of horny basically young man uh, running around, ending up in brothels and talking about women's tits. What were some of the most interesting things that you discovered about Kafka? So a lot of these passages that um, where we see Kafka um, being more lewd toward sex workers that he encounters or um, women's bodies or um, homoerotic, you know, expressing homoerotic desire in describing men at a men's bodies at a nudist sanatorium where he's staying. A lot of these passages were censored in the old edition. And in a way, the fact that they were deleted draws our attention to them maybe somewhat more than than it would if if they'd been there in the first place. Because mm-hmm. um, it, it all is, you know, I mean, Kafka has, on the one hand, Kafka obviously has a really unusual, um, somewhat perverse sexuality or, or maybe just complex uh, i mean and, and maybe most people do um but kafka is just very eloquent in in expressing his his perversity and his the complexity of his sexuality because he's kafka but on the other hand it's also nothing surprising coming from a 26 to 40 year old diarist uh who's exploring the the city and some sort of countercultural milieu like the like the nudist uh, movement or the nudist um, natural health uh, sanatorium. And it's it's more surprising, I think, because we were given this image of Kafka as a kind of ascetic, um, monkish artist saint or literary you know martyr to literature, and then are confronted with this now as if it was some vague secret about him. But it was only a secret because Braun didn't let us see it in the first place. It was, it was, it, it, it's all part of the fullness and and richness of this, of these diaries um, as a a record of, of a self that is complex and human. Yeah, it's so interesting reading some of this stuff because it's just a lot of stuff that you don't see in his other work. You really don't see some of this real natural kind of normal young man kind of stuff uh, that we really get to see in these really cool like little diary entries. Yeah. Yeah, he's uh, he's definitely earthier. And I mean, that's one of the things, because even in his diaries, there are moments where he's constructing this more, this more tortured artist persona, let's say. I mean, maybe that makes it sound like too much of an artifice, but there are moments where he's exploring or expressing the kinds of sentiments that we associate with Kafka or or constructing the kinds of literary um, expressions that we associate with Kafka. But then, you know, we'll get an entry from two days later that um, tells us that right after he finished writing those really Kafka-like entries, he went out to the brothel or, mm. you know, um, that he was sort of living this life in parallel to the mental life or the literary life that he was constructing in his writing. Yeah. It's both a repository of his literary attempts and a personal diary. Mm. 
For me, that everyday presence of Kafka's Jewishness that's so prominent in this work, and the fact that Jewish culture was so vibrant at the time, that's astounding for me. And it's not something that I feel is really in his other writings. Like, I, th- I think that he is a writer who's Jewish, but if you just read his fiction and short stories, you'd probably not consider him a Jewish writer, per se. Yeah, I don't think the word Jew appears anywhere in his fiction, nor do many other designations, like national or ethnic designations. He tends to... You know, even names sometimes become initials and so on. Writing sometimes names have some sense of um, eth- ethnicity attached to them. That's been explored by scholars and so on. Um, but he he tends to revert to this more um, generic, sort of delocalized um, atmosphere in his fiction. But it's sort of once you encounter how much in his letters and his diaries have constantly in his adulthood he was grappling with his jewishness and exploring all different facets of jewish culture and the diaries for um large portions of the diaries it's the yiddish theater that was visiting Prague guest performances and once you see that then i feel like you go back to his fiction and you start to see the jewish themes being omnipresent um that they're not only Jewish themes, they're also themes of the human condition and so on, but that's sort of questions of communal belonging or of um, even something like assimilation, you know, adapting um, or being unable to adapt or ostracized, uh, pariahdom, mm-hmm. um, abjection, shame, <laughs> you know, all of these um, facets of the Jewish experience that he's exploring more explicitly in his diaries and letters Um are implicit in the themes that he wrestles with in his writing. Uh, and I think uh, a lot of the things that attracted me to his fiction before I'd really come to know this side of Kafka in retrospect had a kind of Jewish valence to them where they were, it was related to these um, questions of his Jewishness that were very, um, were, that were at the forefront, I think, of his concerns in his adulthood. It's interesting. I, I think it begins within the time frame of the diaries, his, his fascination with these questions. Because when in, in his letter to his father, which is one of the more famous autobiographical documents that he left behind, it's a letter that was never delivered to his father. But he talks about how little Jew, being Jewish meant to him, you know, as a child, in part because um, he couldn't understand why his father was reproaching him for insufficient. Um, connection to his Jewishness when his father himself was assimilated at bourgeois and seemed pretty indifferent about temple and went four times a year. And he talks about how his bar mitzvah just seemed like an exercise and learning by heart and so on, and how little interest it had for him. And then, and then he even mentions how when he did finally become um, interested in the Yiddish theater and so on, then those were things his father disdained. His father has a Western European. Um, German-speaking Jew was was actually uh, pretty contemptuous of the Eastern European um, actors, mm-hmm. um, uh, which was uh, a kind of um, attitude that was rather common among among Western European, maybe particularly German-speaking Western European um, Jews um, of the middle class to look down on their Eastern European brethren who who came from you know more impoverished shtetls and um, spoke Yiddish, which then was demeaned as a kind of mangled German and so on. So uh, pretty um, anti-Semitic biases, you know, between two different groups of Jews. Um, And so uh, in the diaries, Kafka becomes, uh, spends a lot of time writing about the plays, the actresses that he develops crushes on, the actor Yitzhak Obi, who becomes one of uh, you know, a close friend of his. Um, he, Levy is telling him stories of Jewish life in Warsaw, and he's recording the different customs and um, anecdotes about that. Um, he prepares to deliver a lecture that he does then deliver uh, at a, a recitation evening by Levy on the Yiddish language. And to prepare, we see him in his diaries excerpting a French history of Yiddish literature and theater that he's uh, using to take notes from uh, to prepare this lecture. And as the German edition does, I've just reproduced his notes, which are sometimes just quotations from the French, and sometimes they're his 
um, German translations, which I've then rendered in English, um, of the of the French text, just about the history of Yiddish literature. Um, a number of his closest friends were really active Zionists, and um, uh, through them he was exposed to Zionism. And you can see in the series him taking a rather distanced, somewhat ironic um, attitude toward toward the Zionists. There's this passage where he's like, another Palestine traveler, all these Palestine travelers, this is how they get in their zeal and so on. And he's kind of always observing somewhat clinically and ironically, but at the same time he attended a Zionist uh, congress in, in, in uh, Vienna when he was there for his um, unofficial duties for the insurance institute where he worked at a, at a conference on accident prevention. Uh, he also attended the World Zionist Congress there. Um, and, and again, sort of registered his impressions somewhat ironically in the diaries of that. Um, but it, uh, whatever his complex attitudes were toward these different, there's also a whole section of the diaries where he's talking about Yiddish literature and Czech literature as exemplary of the literature of small nations the advantages that those literatures have vis-a-vis uh, German literature, which is, of course, what he, he writes in German, not in Czech or, or Yiddish. And uh, he's, he's sort of looking with admiration at these these literatures. So so all of this, it's complex. It can be read in many different ways, but what it sort of shows unequivocally is just how deeply engaged and involved he was, as you said, with his, with questions of being, what Jew, being Jewish means in his time and place. Yeah. Such an interesting period in uh, German history as well uh, for the Jews, because it seems like they did have a kind of little, like beautiful patch there that was just completely destroyed, like just in such a short time. That's true. And it's also true that it's interesting because it's transitional, I'm not speaking about what happened later, but just that Kafka's generation of Jews, they were kind of the first generation that was, um, for whom their Jewishness was this matter of um, interrogation, of self-interrogation. Because I think Kafka says um, somewhere that his generation of German-speaking Jews, it's like their um, hind legs are still caught in, are still stuck in the um, world of their you know, the Jewish world of their fathers who were, grew up in rural um, Orthodox or observant Judaism. Well, with their um, four legs, they're still flailing to find new ground and find no new ground. Mm-hmm. And so in this transitional moment, though, it's a very fertile moment where you get all these new approaches. You have not just one Zionism, but many Zionisms, cultural Zionism. Kafka, mm-hmm. you know, met Martin Bubar and was, you know, spoke with him and was... Um, he was just fully embroiled in these questions. Yeah. And then the, the whole question of assimilation seems the drama of assimilation is something that I think he kind of poetized in his work. Um, you know, whether or not it's specifically Jewish or, or it's, it's sort of universalized as a, as, as the human condition, um, this, this struggle to belong, um, when belonging is not something you could take for granted. Seems at the heart of so much of his fiction. Yeah, brilliant. One of the things he also prefigures pretty early in these diaries is his early death. I think he even states he'd be surprised if he lived to 40 pretty early in the book. Was he, like, how sickly was he? That's the thing. Yeah, I don't think, (laughs) I mean, it's complicated, but he had this self-perception of illness long before he was actually diagnosably ill. You know, um, so he was diagnosed with tuberculosis in 1917, and it's, he definitely didn't have it long before then, I don't think. Um, but he um, he saw himself as somehow sickly and weak, and some of this may have to do with a certain Jewish self-perception or, or an internalized anti-Semitism about Jewish bodies, because that was certainly in the air at the time, the idea of Jewish bodies as somehow medically medicalized or or uh, diseased in some way and weak and effeminate and so on and he tended to reproach himself for those kinds of qualities for not, not having sufficient strength um uh he he was he did seem to suffer from the diaries very often from headaches and insomnia and so he had all these symptoms and 
he refers to himself as a kind of hypochondriac. Um, and he does respond when he finally has the tuberculosis diagnosis, the way a hypochondriac often responds when they get, or I guess maybe the cliche of how hypochondriac might respond when they actually get a diagnosed illness with a kind of um, embrace of, you know, um, there are other reasons that he responds in this counterintuitive way to the tuberculosis diagnosis, like it seems to be, to resolve for him the conflict over um, his engagements, uh, to his marital engagements that he's been breaking off and resuming and can decide whether to get married. And this seems like a, a sort of resolution of that for him that he knows now that he, he he's not going to settle into domestic life. And yeah, the sickliness seems like it's it's a part of his self-perception. And it's also maybe a part of his kind of aesthetic persona, getting back to that idea that some of what he writes in the diaries is kind of self-dramatized or poetized. You know, when he describes his headache as like having boards screwed into both of his temples or these kinds of... Uh, there's one part where he talks about it as like an inner leprosy that reminds him of the skull cross sections and textbooks. And then he talks about a knife, like dividing the thin membranes of the very close to working brain parts. And, uh, these image, this imagery and so on, like, obviously he's doing a kind of literary transmuting of whatever bodily states he's experiencing. And so like sickliness, obviously interested him as a literary subject too. And that's where it always gets fuzzy for me, or maybe now that I've translated the diaries and I see Kafka this way, it gets fuzzy for me where these are biographical facts about him or where they are part of a kind of literary persona. Um, that's maybe no less sincerely felt, but the way it reads on the page is like this agony of, you know, of a diseased <laughs> person, whereas maybe, maybe he's already creating literature out of it in those moments. And that's one of the key kind of ambiguities of anything in these diaries is that there are pieces in the diaries that you realize, oh, this is just, this is literature. He's not writing about himself. This is a character right now. And some there's some detail or, or something he does, or, or some of them are just straight up stories where he's clearly writing a story. Others are diary entries, but then he published them as literary pieces and literary journals later. So you realize, oh, maybe it started as a diary entry, or maybe it was always potentially a literary piece. And uh, the fact that the line can't be sharply drawn then means that there's one approach that would take it all as as literature, or as potentially the literature, and then question how much um, it reflects necessarily the biography um, or, the, or the psychological experience. Although he did seem surely agonized and surely um, perceived himself as somehow sickly. Um, he was, you know, physically active. He was swimming, rowing. Um, he mentions it in the diaries. He loved swimming. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think he was, he was also, uh, sort of obsessed with health, uh, and, and natural health fads, you know, it was kind of a trendy movement at the time or that he, uh, pursued so he he did this fitness routine this molar this molar routine every morning by the open window and he was a vegetarian he fletcherized his food which many chewed a certain number of times before he would swallow mm. um, there's also a lot of scholarly attention to his eating issues like it's quite possible he had some sort of eating disorder you know uh, but all of this uh, I think there's a line in the diary where he says he's describing the naturopathic, somebody interested in naturopathy as a type. And he says that this type treats their health almost as if it were a kind of illness. You know? mm -hmm. That's maybe the connection between his obsession with health and fitness and his sense of himself as somehow diseased. Or uh, the other connection is maybe that he always felt like he didn't have enough strength to, to both perform, you know, as an office worker, as an attorney for an insurance institute. And um, uh, uh, actualize himself as a writer, and you know, externalize this this mission or this this dreamlike inner life, as he called it, this tremendous world in his head, as he called it. And he thought he just, you know, if he was a person of greater energy, um, maybe like his father, you know, he could do such a thing. And some of the health fads were supposed to maximize your kind of masculine energy. I mean, he's a very complex person. Definitely.
All right. I want to ask you about the footnotes in the book. They're meticulously researched. We were saying before you, we started recording that most of them are from the original uh, German edition, but they're detailed to the point of like going through the actors and actresses in these Jewish theater productions that were put on in Prague. And I wanted to ask, like, was there a consideration to put these things on the page or do you think that would just clutter the whole project? Yeah, I I think to me, first of all, it would have just cluttered up the pages in a way that I think would have intruded on the reading experience. But that sense of intrusion maybe was something I was even more averse to in and of itself, that sense of coming between the reader and the and the text. But I was trying to restore kind of the experience of reading Kafka's notebooks in their haste and spontaneity and in their kind of unfiltered. Um, and of course, I'm trying to capture that the feel of that in another language. So it's not it's not like reading a facsimile of, of the notebooks or actually reading the notebooks. And I think uh, I would have found that pretty disruptive to the effect that I was trying to achieve um, in the translation. Um, and then also, I do think like there are passages where he's just kind of um, listing people or places or is or places uh, you know organizations that he's had to deal with. Like when he was organizing this recitation evening for Louis, he just starts listing everybody he met with and all of the organizations he met with, and um, each of those has its own footnote. So it would have gotten quite uh, quite cluttered. And, and and I guess lastly, just the the look of these pages mattered to me. I mean, Kafka, for example, he always, um, not always, but quite often, uh, made a horizontal stroke of the pen in between diary entries or when he broke off an entry and began a new one. He would use a horizontal stroke of the pen just to kind of uh, demarcate that he was starting a new entry. Um, he wrote dates in, a, in an odd way, as you noted, where he used Roman numerals, mm. um, a mix of Roman and Arabic numerals. Uh, and wasn't always consistent. Sometimes he just wrote the the day, you know, twelve instead of writing February nineteen eleven. Um, and all of that, the way it looks on the page, to me, also helps bring across that feel of materiality of these of these notebooks. And so, having other things on the page that were actually external to that um, would have been would have interfered with that. I think. Mm -hmm. There is an index at the back as well, which is fantastic because you get to realize the number of figures that are prominent figures that he met during his time as well, and the number of things that are in this work. So it's uh, brilliant having that index at the back too. I might ask you what you're currently working on. Um, well, I don't have a translation project lined up now. I've been doing some some writing about Kafka for different publications, and uh, I am working on uh, about the first 30 pages of Clayman Setz's new novel, which I, I think is very imminently to be published in German. I don't think it's been published yet, but uh, maybe it's February. I don't want to get that wrong, but it's imminent. Um, Clayman Setz's next novel. And so I'm doing 30 pages. This is something for the German publisher to show to um, English and, and American publishers. Kalman too should soon have his next novel. Um, there's no exact date, but I think it's it's coming soon. Uh, and so I'm eager to do the next uh, Zets of the next Kalman. And uh, yeah. Okay, excellent. All right, one more question about translation. No, I know this was a dream project for you. Would you have another dream project that you'd like to work on? Well, they can't all be dream projects, I think, <laughs> or or they are all dream projects. I certainly uh, um, wouldn't take on a project that wasn't something that I really liked and wanted to do. And 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 that's, for example, I feel about the Zets and the Kelman that they're both, in a sense, dream projects. Um, both authors and um, they're um, pretty uh, steady <laughs> production of of great new literary works, but uh, the sort of monumental undertaking that it was to do the diaries, the eight-year strenuous, um, sometimes desperate <laughs> type of project, I definitely don't think is something that I ought to do too often. 
so uh, um, I'm not always looking for something like that uh, for another huge um, peak to scale. Um, but there are, are a few writers that, I mean, I've always dreamed of translating Nietzsche. Um, his prose is just among the finest, most dynamic and simply beautiful um, German prose styles. There's a writer called Leo Perutz. I haven't looked at actually the existing English translations of his work. Uh, so I don't know if he's in need of retranslation, but I love his, you know, I've discovered his work fairly recently because uh, I translated Kilman's Till, which is a 30, you know, story of the 30 years war. Um, and then Kilman, Daniel Kilman had recommended to me Leo Peretz's 30 years war novel called um, in English, in the existing English translation is called By Night Under the Stone Bridge, which is a pretty exact translation of the German title. Um, that's a beautiful work uh, that I've read in German. Um, haven't yet looked at the English translation. Whether Leo Peretz has uh, works that are right for translation or for retranslation, I don't yet know, but he's a writer who I can also imagine really being enthralled by the process of translating. Hmm. Oh, okay. I'll ask you, what were some of your gateway books? What were some of the books that drew you into the world of literature? Well, the first books that really drew me into kind of adult literature rather than children's literature were uh, Isaac Asimov's Foundation Trilogy, hmm. uh, um, which I still really value those books and love them. Uh, they're not uh, written with a great literary style. In fact, he became somewhat of a better writer later on. That's when he was really pretty pulpy when he, he wrote those. Uh, but he did write with great clarity and he wrote incredible dialogue. Those are books of profound imagination and they still really speak to me. And then I'm not sure exactly how I transitioned from science fiction to other stuff, but Kafka was pretty early, you know, my early adolescence. Um, I started reading Kafka, Dostoevsky. Um, a lot of people, I think, when they first read Kafka, it's kind of in the context of existentialism, Sartre, Camus, and that's where I started to. And then at some point, you kind of realize that he escapes those categories and um, that there's much more to Kafka. Um, uh, but I started reading those guys. Um, yeah. And then there's just been so many different phases, you know, phases where I read a ton of Russian literature, literature, Tolstoy, Chekhov, um, and also my adolescence, uh, Ralph Ellison, Richard Wright, um, those books were hugely influential. So it was pretty, um, eclectic, wide ranging, uh, by the time I was in college, uh, Susan Sontag and, and Cynthia Ozick, and um, I continued with the German stuff, of course, Josef Roth and, and Nietzsche, and I was studying a lot of philosophy in college. Mm -hmm. um, and I wrote my uh, undergraduate thesis on Paul Zelan, the poet. Okay. Um, so he's an important gateway for me into um, German poetry. Yeah. Okay. What books are you currently reading or have you recently enjoyed or are you looking forward to in 2023? Sure. Uh, well, I, a, a book that I recently read that really um, meant a, a, a great deal to me is uh, Daniel Deronda. Have you read that? Talking about I think I've read it at university, yeah. Questions of Jewishness, George Eliot's Daniel Deronda. Mm -hmm. um, that book... Uh, uh, it's it's um, so multi-layered and such an astonishing achievement uh, for um, when we talk about writers being able to explore um, experiences, uh, uh, cultural experiences, ethnic experiences that aren't there. All on you know George Eliot's ability to inhabit not just you know. Um, not just sympathetically inhabit Jewish characters, which most English writers of her era um, um, not only failed to do, but also usually went the other way. You know, Dickens with his pretty um, disgusting anti-Semitic stereotypes. I love I love Dickens, but um, obviously the way he wrote Jews was um, anti-Semitic. Uh, not only was it that she could sympathetically inhabit Jewish characters, but she inhabits multiple characters with very different, uh, you know, th there's Daniel Deronda who, um, spoiler alert, you know, discovers his Jewish background and embraces it wholeheartedly. Um, and it becomes kind of, it sort of gives meaning to his life. Then he meets his mother who, 
um, the reason that he was raised not as a Jew is because she wanted to rescue him from the constraints that she felt as a woman who wanted to be an actress but was constrained by the orthodoxy of her father and his strictness and discipline and uh, wanted to liberate herself from what she saw as this narrowing, you know, and then we, there's uh, um, there's this um, the character who introduces Deronda to Judaism, Mordecai, and, and um, his, his whole spiritual, you know, incredible, his spiritual depth and struggle and there's um there are these other jews who are more worldly um, this family of um jewish uh, uh business people a businessman's family who who takes in mordecai and takes care of him but are pretty concerned with just you know getting by and uh she's able to explore all that and then uh, there's a whole uh, other part of the novel Gwendolyn harlan you know an english woman and uh the way in which um, being a woman, the constraints of being of being a woman in her of in, in her social position, um, and just the the panorama of human possibilities that she's able to explore were incredible. Mm-hmm. Completely different from that is uh, uh, Lydia Davis's second collection of essays, in terms of translation. There's nothing better than reading Lydia Davis on her translation um, experiences and approaches. That's Probably nothing's informed uh, what I hope to do with translation more than Lydia Davis's um, articulations of her um, creative experiences as a translator. Um, and that second collection of essays really um, revolves around translation and different types of translation too. Like she translates um, or, or translates uh, isn't exactly the word, but she, she takes... Um, works written in kind of archaic um, English that are you know less accessible to like children's literature that's less accessible to children now and renders it in English that would be more accessible to children now. Mm-hmm. She does these kind of exercises of trying to translate from languages she doesn't entirely know just by trying to figure out the cognates. And <laughs> um, Anyway, she's uh, I love that book too. A recent uh, story collection that I loved but uh, or not but, but and it's it's by a friend of mine so I read most of the stories as he was developing them so mm-hmm. I have a very intimate connection with these stories and uh, love them there's uh, Two Nurses Smoking by David Means is that the um, is David Means the one who wrote his, uh, Histopia yeah okay cool yeah did you read that yeah I thought it was great yeah, it is great. Yeah, yeah. He's he's known, you know, for his story collections because he's published like six or seven of them, mm. uh, and that's his novel. Yeah, it is great. Mm. Uh, yeah, um, I mean, there are things that I'm looking forward to reading that are not that haven't newly come out, but I haven't read yet that are on my shelf, like Basawa's uh, Book of Disquiet, mm. which I've dipped into, but I haven't fully committed to reading from start to finish yet, and that is really exciting for me. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's so good. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I read the full introduction and um, some of the beginning and I'm definitely riveted. Yeah. We'll take a quick break here on Million Zero and come back with Ross's Desert Island Books. This episode is brought to you by Chinese Surveillance Balloons and TikTok. Your secrets are safe with us. For a limited time, you can get 50% off your own Chinese surveillance balloon for your child's next birthday. Use promo code BTZ at checkout. Go to ChineseSurveillanceBalloons.com. We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time for Ross's Desert Island Books. Daniel Deronda, I could read again and again. I was thinking that I'd probably want um, a Jane Austen book. And while Emma is probably my favorite Jane Austen book on a desert island, I'd probably want Pride and Prejudice because uh, it's just, uh, it reads much more swiftly. And there's, I, I think I laugh, a lot, I laugh a lot more at Pride and Prejudice than I laugh at Emma as much. There's great comedy in Emma too, but you know, it's a slow burn. So I think I'd take Pride and Prejudice. Um, Stoner 
by John Williams. Mm-hmm. Um, what else did I put down here? I thought I should bring a science fiction. So I was thinking I want to range across genres a little because Desert Island, but I may not always feel like reading one type of literature. So I chose Dune for science fiction. I, mm-hmm. I think I could read Dune over and over again and never get tired of it. Um, um, uh, I was thinking that I, I could cheat. I was, because I have a, a uh, Everyman edition of James M. M. Kane that includes three novels so maybe that would count as one book and that has and they're kind of novellas right the postman always rings twice double indemnity and mildred pierce are all at that edition mm-hmm. this way i don't have to choose between those are you keeping count yeah i think you're up to six maybe i think oh wow so i, I might almost be done here so uh poetry uh, just take keats i think i have all of keats in one penguin edition so it's complete feats and there's if I just brought the, the Ode to a Grecian Urn, that would already be inexhaustible. <laughs> but having everything um, is all the better. Uh, and then um, sort of maybe, I don't know if it's the opposite spectrum, but just couldn't be more different poetry would be uh, Ceylon's No One's Rose, Niemann's Rose. I'd bring the German edition to Niemann's Rose, so that way I don't have to choose among the translations, many of which are brilliant. Uh, but, you know, um, they're all very different from each other. Uh, what am I up to? Eight? I think so, yeah. So let's say, uh, am I allowed to just bring Shakespeare's complete plays in one volume? So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then I never run out of entertainment. Uh, you could read those over and over again. Uh, you don't even need the complete, but if I can bring the complete, then I really will never run out. And let's say uh, Dostoevsky's The Idiot. Are there any other books you'd like to add to your Desert Island books, Ross? Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring some Kafka with me. Um, it almost seemed too obvious to bring Kafka, but on the other hand, uh, I wouldn't want to be on a desert island without Kafka. And I had to consider whether I want to bring the diaries themselves. I would bring the German edition. I don't want to be obsessing over my own translation or finding mistakes in it that uh, I didn't um, know about, but now I have enough time to discover on the desert island. So I thought... Um, uh, well, the diaries are so much a part of me. Maybe I want to bring something that'll be a little fresher and have less baggage. And if I had to choose from all Kafka's work, it's really hard to choose between fiction and aphorisms, letters, diaries. But um, I think I'd bring the letters to Melina, who was his uh, first uh, Czech, his first translator at all, and his Czech translator, and with whom he had this incredibly moving epistolary love affair collected in this uh, collection of letters that... Um, uh, is also a love affair with the Czech language and Czech literature. Nice. Cool. That's a pretty packed island. That sounds good. Yeah, I think that's pretty good. If I could, I'd bring Patricia Highsmith too for some... Okay, uh, I'd entertain them. Talented miserably. Mm, very good. Cool. We should probably wrap it up. I should probably go do some work. Um, <laughs> but before we go, do you want to tell us where we can go and get the brilliant Kafka Diaries and also where we can go and get in touch with you online? So I think you can get the Kafka Diaries wherever you buy books, at least in the U.S. I'm not sure where we're at in the U.K. and Australia and so on, um, but uh, certainly online retailers um, seem to carry it across the board. Um, and um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram. As a, both are fairly recent Uh um, entrees into social media for me, but I'm there. And uh, I can also be reached on my website, which is Ross M. My middle name is Meckler, Ross M. Benjamin.com. Um, yeah, I can be found in all those places. I do have to ask you about the Meckler. Where's that from? That's my grandfather's name and my mo- my mother's um, birth name, uh, Meckler. So he was born um, in Jitomir in Ukraine. Hmm are from Kiev and the age of eight he escaped pogroms mm. uh, came across Europe spent two years crossing Europe and crossing the Atlantic and coming to the United States as a young child wow okay. one of those stories yeah if you've read Yosef Rod's Job yeah uh, which translated that's uh, very close to my grandfather's story in some ways wow starting a new life in, in the lower you side mm. well, my grandfather was in East Harlem um yeah, or Call It Sleep by Henry Roth. Mm. All of these books really speak to me. I should have mentioned that one too, but uh, maybe I should have brought that one to the island. 
but they, uh, yeah. So that's uh, Aaron Beckler was my grandfather. My son is Aaron too. Very nice. Okay. Excellent. Well, I'll let you go. Congratulations on this brilliant work. Uh, it is unbelievable. I, I think I'm going to have this on my bedside table forever. So yeah, up to the present. It means the world to me. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. Thanks once again to Ross Benjamin. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BeyondZeroPod, and you can email us at BeyondTheZeroPod at gmail.com. Don't forget to head over to Patreon.com and think about supporting this podcast. We'll be back with your next episode very soon.